Deadwood Soundwell. I watched the snail crawl along the edge of a straight razor. That is my dream. That's my nightmare. Crawling, slithering along the edge of a straight razor and surviving. You're entering a cosmic void. Welcome to A Cosmic Void. I'm Biggs. I'm Jeremiah. So today we're doing Apocalypse Now. So of course this is a very, very famous movie. Part of the the reason it's so famous is just like a really troubled history. And we'll get into all of that later on. But what's your history with this movie, Jeremiah? I don't think I've ever talked about the bronchitis situation. But there was a time in my life where I got extremely sick with bronchitis and almost died. And this movie was playing nonstop in my background. For like four days. Like literally. Because you know how when you buy DVDs. Like back in the day at least. You buy a DVD. And when it would end. It would just start over. It was the ones without the menu. Basically. Or like a very basic menu. Oh yeah. So you have talked about it on here. But you didn't mention the bronchitis. (laughs) Yeah. I like legitimately could not eat. I was like bedridden. I literally thought I was going to die. I just could not eat at all. And I was just laying in this dark basement bedroom. Just trying to survive rewatching apocalypse now nonstop. I love that movie, honestly. My old landlord used to have this whole case of just all these DVDs. And he was like, just go through whatever, man, I don't care. And this is before I had internet. So there was like a, this weird part of my life where I would just literally only watch DVDs that were around me. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't have the Netflix or anything like that. So I'm really glad I got to be really broke at one point in my life. Yeah. Because I really appreciate DVDs. Like the 4K thing, it sounds like a gag, but I actually like purchase a lot of 4K movies. I feel like that love came from being poor and just watching DVDs and getting into special features and just, you know, I don't know. So this is definitely part of that. Yeah. I used to watch a lot of fucking DVDs, like a lot for years when I was playing in bands. I didn't have a ton of money, but I mean, we would, God, I would probably spend, I don't know, 150 bucks a month on DVDs and just buy like movie after movie. It had this huge collection, like this big shelf that people used to go and look at all the time. Just be like, Jesus, you got a lot of movies, you know? Yeah, it's not impressive now because it's DVDs, you know? Apocalypse Now, I kind of came across because it was on TV a lot when I was a kid. And so I would see it, parts of it. They put Apocalypse Now on TV? Oh yeah, dude. That's fucking kind of crazy to me. It was edited to shit but 80s was just a different time i don't even want to know what the edited version of kurtz is like i watched a snail crawl along the edge of my finger that is my dream that is my nightmare i can't even imagine what that movie would be like but when i actually sat down to watch it proper it was after i had done my godfather run a couple of times and then i was just like well what else has this guy made and i recognize the title apocalypse now so i bought it and i was blown away i do have to say it's interesting and i don't know if it's this cut because we're doing apocalypse now final cut right and Mm. i don't know if it's this cut or if it's just that i'm older but i'm starting to get the feeling that this is a movie you really really love when you're younger and then when you get older doesn't quite hit like it used to for me i hadn't seen it in a while and when i watched it again i was kind of like not as excited as i used to be i don't know maybe the magic is played out for me and maybe it's this cut i don't know like whenever i watched it in its entirety it was always redux you know when i saw it on tv mm-hmm. it was edited versions of the theatrical version i guess there's not like really the the kind of trippy stuff that's in the other versions but um i do appreciate that it's shorter than redux because i always thought it was unnecessary long like i think it's like what yeah, 25 or something and, and redux my experience with f- watching apocalypse now was the redux edition i never saw like the original cut mm-hmm. per se but watching this, this final cut i actually really appreciated this cut 
that I feel like this cut is the movie I want to remember. And I'll we'll get into it as we uh, come along. So Captain Willard has been given a mission during the Vietnam War to take out one of their own colonels who's gone insane. You're entering the void. So basically, we start off with Willard chilling out in his fucking apartment. And he's uh, basically going crazy. I don't know. What would you say is happening in the beginning part? Yeah, I mean, they're they're playing the doors. Pretty iconic yeah. scene, I think. He's just, like, getting ready for Charlie, as he puts it. And he's doing all these moves and stuff. And then he looks at a mirror and then breaks the mirror. And he's, like, bleeding all over as they're kind of doing the breakdown. He's fucking naked. He's just fucking blackout drunk. Like, literally just pouring alcohol on himself. Just getting fucking lit. Uh, crying. Slobbering over himself. Just basically talking about how like the longer he basically squanders in that room the weaker he gets and charlie squats in the bush and it's getting stronger and then like just going fucking bonkers to the wall passes out the next day happens and uh he gets a knock on the door and he basically is forced awaken by these two guys and they take him to go meet cia right it's basically a top secret mission so he is talking to the military but they drag his ass in a shower like you get the impression at the beginning that he's got ptsd like he's not handling peacetime well he's incoherent like in the beginning like yeah he's just like like these guys are like going there to pick him up and he's like hey that's the fucking door and then he's all like i'm going back to bed fuck you <laughs> like they literally force him in the fucking shower and then he's all up to go he's all ready and he's just disobedient servant the moment you see him it like he literally is just it's just, he, I, he gets such a weird vibe from him man you know what i mean in this like little instance when they're like they're basically questioning him they're like hey were you involved in this and that and this and that and he's like i'm not uh at this moment able to disclose the existence or non-existence of that mission and he's basically like just literally just throwing these words at him they think he's the assassin that they're going for but they don't have a paper trail so they're kind of making sure and he's subtly letting them know yes i am and yes you can trust me by the way he answers them and it's i think it's of note that the actors in the room it's the guy who plays the senator in the godfather too right Mm -hmm. don't remember the actor's name and then you have harrison ford sitting in the room for like a small part because francis ford coppola was like so respected at that point that like he will come in for a cameo just to do this little teeny tiny part of the movie to be a part of a Francis Ford Coppola movie. Like, that's kind of a big deal, you know? But yeah, they're basically looking around and like, yeah, we can trust him, I guess. And so they give him the mission and they seem very bothered talking about Colonel Kurtz. And they're basically telling him he went insane. And then they play this tape recorded message that they have off of a reel to reel. And he's just fucking bonkers, dude. Uh, In my mind, it starts off very logical and then it starts going crazy you know he starts talking about like the bombs i hate them the filthy fucking bombs and then as you slowly start to hear him talk then he talks about like and what do we do we send an assassin to kill the assassin and he's just like basically talking about how we must be merciful to like the people like he's basically calling them out for sending assassins yeah I can't remember if they reveal it in this opening scene. They send an assassin to take him out, and then the assassin gets turned by Kurtz. Like, apparently he joins Kurtz, right? Like, that's the idea that they give. It's really important that this guy, that they can trust him, because they don't want him to turn around to Kurtz's point of view either. Because he's taking the war into his own hands. And Willard is such a an interesting character. He almost stays true to that to the core that he can be trusted by the government. It's so very surreal, you know, watching his journey. So Willard joins a U.S. Navy Riverboat Patrol, PBR, commanded by Chief Petty Officer Phillips with crewman Lance Chef and Mr. Clean to quietly navigate up the Noang River to Kurtz's outpost. Before reaching the coastal mouth of the Noang, they rendezvous with the 1st Squadron, 9th Cavalry Regiment, a helicopter-borne air assault unit commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Bill Kilgore. Let's just talk about Robert Duvall again, because holy shit, he is fucking bonkers in this whole scene man i i what do you think man I, he's like honestly he's probably one of my favorite characters i love 
the character like watching it i hate the reality of that character if that makes sense because this is a guy who cares so little about killing he likes to go surfing like very clearly he wants to surf he finds out that one of the people and the detail that's coming up in the river because they don't know it yet but they're gonna go out of vietnam because the the war is escalating and so like Kurtz they're, is they're like, heading into cambodia right yeah i think that's where they wind up and yeah and uh Kurtz has already crossed over in the border, so they're going all the way through Vietnam, which I guess Francis Ford Coppola did this because he wasn't sure if there was going to be a movie about the Vietnam conflict, and so he was trying to show as much of the war as he could within this movie, and so that's the way he does it, is just by, like, start at the bottom of the river, at the bottom of the country, and move your way up, right? Kilgore wants to surf. He finds out that somebody in his regimen is a, is a famous surfer. He's been, like, recruiting the surfers onto his special elite squadron of air fuckheads right and uh he's got like three or four other dudes that like surf and he's just like totally infatuated <laughs> with this dude and he decides he's gonna take out this beachhead just because that's the best chance it waves around and so they play flight of the valkyrie as they're flying in to scare off all the natives and they're just firing at like people running off and then immediately they take the beach and then they're just sending napalm around on the edges of it where you get that famous line i love the smell of napalm in the morning right smells like victory dude you know what you know what that scene for me is what is that famous godfather quote that you love there's an extra part that people always forget either your brains are the contract or yeah 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 yeah, yeah that this scene for me is like that where it's like i love the smell of napalm in the morning because everyone says that part but the next part is the part that really fucking is just so crucial and just cold where you really get this guy where it smells like victory. Like he, he doesn't give a fuck about these people. Like they're literally, there's a school, like there's literally children that are at school and they pull up and blow this place up, dude, just to go surfing. It's fucking honestly devastating and watching his men just all going off the hinges just shooting at everything and just fucking i mean it's it's a fucking brutal scene dude if you peel back the layers it's how casual he is with death right like he's not only willing to mow down all these innocent people a lot of these vietnamese like you know they don't know who's Viet Cong and who's not but he's willing to just mow through all of them like set napalm everywhere and he's getting his own soldiers killed and he doesn't even even care about his own life because he's just sitting there bare-chested on the beach while there's explosions going on around him and he doesn't even flinch and i think that's what shows that he's like almost in a psychosis is like he yeah. doesn't even flinch at danger and it's not like bravery that's just like how fucked this guy is mentally to me you know to me out of all the evil characters in this movie and there's quite a few like he might be the one that disgusts me the most everybody else has a reason like they're either triggered by the war and they're kind of broken mentally like our protagonists like a lot of the people on the ship that are going down or they're trying to win the war like Kurtz in a way and he's doing it in a very very extreme way and has also lost his mind he wants to do everything on his whim and and he's fine dealing death to do that. To me, he's the most dangerous character that we meet because this is also a guy you can tell the brass probably fucking loves because he goes in and does this thing and he's still following orders, but he just does not give a fuck about human life. The abuse of power, watching him chase them too, because that's a whole thing too, is that they basically steal his fucking surfboard and he freaks out and they're searching for him yeah that was something they added in this version i don't remember that in the redux honestly that was a scene it is in that, the redux is it it is it is in the okay redux, well yeah. it's something they could have cut like <laughs> that yeah, that part was sure. like a little unnecessary for it's me, extra but. willard is describing every character as we meet them and the way he describes Willard, where he's just that kind of man that you know nothing's going to happen to him. He just got that glow about him. Like, everything was just going to work out just fine. Like, because like, he just emanates that kind of vibe, which is, like you said, dangerous for sure. And his abuse of power, too. I actually do like that he chases after him because it shows that he, he will also go off the mission instead of just making it that which makes him like super dangerous but i mean that's know? the whole thing that they're setting up anyways he just decided he's gonna take that beachfront just to i surf. wish he would have came back i wish he would have came back later that would have been wild like towards the end or something 
That would have been sick if he like came back and is like, I don't know, maybe not. I don't know. I found some better waves up up shore. (laughs) Give me that fucking surfboard. (laughs) (laughs) Dungeons arise. Willard believes himself in command of the PBR while Chief prioritizes routine patrol objectives over Willard's, slowly making their way upriver. Willard partially reveals his mission to Chief. Help him out with the mission, should they proceed. As Willard studies Kurtz's dossier, he is struck by the mid-career sacrifice Kurtz made by leaving a prestigious Pentagon assignment to Special Forces with no prospect of advancing beyond the rank of Colonel. I actually did not understand that until I just read that, and I'm really glad I read that. That scene always confused me, because I was like, why does he care that he fucking did this or that? I didn't know it was a prestigious. Yeah, he's basically saying, why did he do this? This is not what you do when you're moving up the ranks. Like, he's limiting himself, and then furthermore, he's putting himself into dangerous situations. Like, why are you doing that? Vietnam's not a war where people typically want to get into the conflict, including, you know, Martin Sheen's character. Like, he... He, he wants to get into the ship, but so that's what he has in common with, with Colonel Kurtz, right? Like he only feels right when he's at war for whatever reason. It, it's unusual. And so he's like trying to figure him out because he's trying to figure out himself. This is right where we start seeing the mirror that is Willard and Kurtz. Because you're starting to get that Willard isn't a fucking scumbag. You know, he's kind of chill with these guys, right? You know, he talks about, uh, what is it, the kid? He's always busting his balls. And, you know, the chef, his head was screwed on a little too tight. You know, you're starting to get this vibe that he fits in with the mold, too. He's this super secret assassin, right? That's the thing that fucks with me. He blends in so well with those guys. You kind of do forget that he is like a super secret assassin. You start seeing the mold break when you see him interact brutally with people. At a remote U.S. Army outpost, Willard and Lance seek information on what is upriver and receive a dispatch back containing official and personal mail. Unable to find the commanding officer, Willard orders Chief to continue. Willard learns via the dispatch that another MACV SOG operative, Special Forces Captain Richard Colby, was sent on an earlier mission identical to Willard and has since joined Kurtz. Right. That'd be that one guy. We also get in those letters, we hear Willard talk about how his wife left him, right? Because he could never... No, be- I think that happens in the be- that happens in the beginning. Oh, you're right. Because that's part yeah. of him going crazy. Yeah, never where mind. Where he's you're like, right. but I honestly, I did forget to bring that up. And I feel I, like... I did bring it up a it little isn't, bit. Yeah. It is It is important to talk about that because in that beginning part, man, he's just, you know, I didn't feel right at war. I didn't feel right here. And... Until she served the divorce papers and then I knew what I needed to do, you know, he's just going fucking off the hinges. Like you were saying, Willard is a man that definitely his purpose is war for sure. I don't think it is, though. I think he's just so traumatized by war that he, that he can only do what. Yeah, he doesn't know how to fit back in the outside world anymore. And I think that's why Kurtz appeals to him so much is because Kurtz has given up the outside world, right? You can only go up to Colonel, which I assume means like you're not necessarily getting out of conflict, right? Like he's limited himself to these places where he's going directly into the action. And I think Kurtz has gone through a similar thing where he's just like, there's only the war now. I understand this. I can fight this. I don't understand life anymore outside of war. And I I think that's the key to Willard right there. I would push back against something you said earlier, which is like, I don't think he fits onto the fishing boat super well. I think he's either quiet and observing the things that are going on around him, or he pulls rank and it definitely bristles the other guys because like he has a mission and that's all he truly cares about on this. But a lot of the time he plays observer, right? Like he kind of fades into the background and watches right so this uh this plot synopsis i got skips a lot of shit so i'm gonna go kind of off the rails ish again at this point we get to the kind of grammy part we're uh seeing uh the playgirls are there basically and they're doing a dance they're trying to get gas and mail they get a gas can and he get they get given these tickets where they go basically 
you know, the, the bunny girls or whatever are showing up and doing some dances and everyone's hipping and hollering. And then it gets like really crazy and dudes are jumping over there trying to basically literally, I guess, steal one of these chicks. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, it feels like a bad, bad idea <laughs> all the way yeah, around. It doesn't seem like a good idea. And you could see the Vietnam people, too, in the background just watching through the fences and there's a very gross scene yeah at a certain point they get worried about the girls so they put them in a helicopter and go to launch off and there's one dude who just like hangs onto the the bottom part of that helicopter and then like falls off into the water because it's just like how fucking long are you gonna hang on to this right just like shows how crazy everybody is over there and like what a crazy idea it is to like show all these sex symbols in the middle of this war that doesn't seem like a great idea for a uso show right so basically they leave they're going up river willard and the chief kind of getting into a fight chief sees a boat and flags it down it's going through the boat and he wants to search it willard pulls rank and he's like you know this is your mission but this is my boat and they pull over to go basically see what is going on with this boat Right. The chief, like, basically says it's protocol, so we have to do it. Yeah. Like, he, that's how he's able to get ar- around the polling rank, is he says, this is protocol, we need to do this. And the chef is the only one that really, I would say, is like, no, we shouldn't do this, this is wrong. Like, what, it's, they're fucking farmers, man. What do you want, you know, they're fucking farmers. And chief is, like, yelling at the chef to basically go through all their shit. And, you know, they get on the boat, they're going through their shit. Uh, the kids on the fucking gunner, you know, with sunglasses on. Someone moves fast while chef is going through something. Trips out the kid. Kid just guns them down with the fucking, or the gunner gun. You know, that big ass gun. Yep. And it turns out she was sitting on something that was around when the, the guy got tripped out and started firing. And the boss is just like, what is she sitting on? What is she trying to hide? And it turns out it's just a puppy within this canister. For whatever reason, she's hiding that. She's like still kind of alive. And so they decide to get her to a hospital. Yeah. You know, the, the chef is like, you know, this is he's actively fucked up from this upset crying over this. And he's like, we could save her, man. Willard pulls up, pulls out his beautiful 1911 and just shoots her in the dome and says, let's leave. And cold, no motion, no remorse, no nothing. Just pulls up, bop, get on the boat. And it, it is so devastating. I feel like you really feel how um, the chef feels, you know. You fucking bastard. Just crying, broken, broken. If he hadn't avoided Willard pulling rank, they would all be alive. Not to mention the gunner like twitches and kills them all for no good reason at all, right? Like no good reason at all. So like there's- He's literally 17. Yeah, there's guilt to go around on that ship. That gunner, that that's Lawrence Fishburne. He was Hell 15 yeah. years old when he filmed that. How crazy is that, man? Super wild. Yeah, I love Lawrence Fishburne. Fucking, you're the best. It's nighttime. They pull up to this crazy, was it like a tower made out of like... They, they keep rebuilding this bridge. Is that what you're talking about? And then the Viet Cong will basically blow it up every day and they just rebuild it every day so that the superiors can talk about how the supply line is still running. So they just do this pointless act over and over again where they're wasting resources and having tons of people get killed. When they pull up, people are actively swimming to them, screaming, like, please take me. I want to go home, please. Desperately trying to leave. Willard pulls up, takes Lance. Lance is fucked up on acid, and just they're just rolling up on these people, smoking and listening to crazy rock music. (laughs) They're just shooting at nothing and everything. Yeah. Like, they're just literally fighting the jungle, is how it feels. Honestly, it's literally them fighting the jungle. They get gas. I think they get mail, too, didn't they? I think they got the last dossier. Yeah, I think you're right. And then Lance, still fucked up on acid. I think takes probably more. He's fucking around with this smoke grenade, and they're all just chilling. Mr. Clean is killed. The enemies start firing at them, and he gets fucking murdered. They start throwing spears at him, right? While they're going yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, this is the spear. Part. And, yeah. and Willard's just like, it's just toy spears, like, relax. And it turns out there's a real spear in there that goes right through him. And then is this where they go to a plantation? And yeah. I'm pretty sure this was added, right? Like, or at least um, a lot part- was added to this scene. 
Yeah, I believe this entire scene's added. This is where we get to the Redux Final Cut issue or whatever. In the Redux, they add a scene where they basically pull up to this French dispatch place. There's all these French people living there, and they bury Mr. Clean, and, you know, they're just hanging out, talking about the Vietnam War and how they were there before the U.S. military, and just getting very passionate. (laughs) They're acting like this land belongs to them because, what, their grandparents had it or whatever. But it is really talking about colonialism in this scene, I think, because it's like these white people come in into a land that is foreign to them, that they don't understand the customs of the people around or even respect what is, you know, the native's land. And then they, at some point, claim this section of land. And so they are just despondent that they're losing the war and that they they should probably leave because they're not safe there. And they're just like, this is our home, like very insistent. But it's also like, yeah, but your forefathers stole that home. It's very much like it's a stolen thing that you're using. And they just refuse to look at it that way because they're so set into like, this is our home. How dare they? Right. But it's like they don't even have the wherewithal to like flip that and think like, how did they feel about that being taken from it? And not to mention, it's like a reminder all the time when you go by that plantation, like this should be ours. Like this is part of our land. And these people came onto our land from way far away and took it over. It's just showing the hypocrisy of it. Willard uh, ends up making googly eyes. One of the broads that's hanging out there. They smoke. What is it? What are, they're smoking heroin? I think it's opium. And uh, yeah, they're smoking opium and getting fucking turned. And uh, then they leave. It's just Willard and the other guy at this point, right? Like they're the only ones left. Willard, Lance, and uh, and Lance is like during this whole journey. I mean, you can watch him. He was the weak one. He's breaking hard. Like even when the when the dog scene happens, he takes the dog from the chef. He's like, this is my fucking dog, you know, and they have this whole weird thing with the dog. Yeah, man, it's fucked. So basically, they arrive at Kurtz's outpost. Yep, which is, as we said earlier, I think it's in Cambodia or Laos, somewhere around there. Just for people not familiar with the Vietnam War. So they were fighting in Vietnam, but they weren't supposed to go outside the borders of Vietnam. But a lot of the Viet Cong were going into Laos and Cambodia. It got uncovered towards the end of the war that there was these secret missions into Laos and Cambodia, which was a really big deal, too, because you're telling everybody, like, we're only fighting in this one country, but then they're fighting in these other countries, too, covertly. And so it's just like, where does this end? Is this a forever war? You know, like, is this ever going to end? They were afraid that communism would take over Asia, okay? They called this the domino theory. Vietnam is this big domino. And then if Vietnam falls, then Cambodia and Laos fall, right? But it's very hypocritical when you're, like, going into Cambodia and Laos because they've already apparently fell. But, like, you're pretending, like, we still need to win Vietnam so that those countries don't fall. But if they're using that as a base of operations, they've already fell. So, it's once again, it's showing, like, the hypocrisy and the thinking of the Vietnam War. Which was just dumb. (laughs) people have very strong feelings about this. So I I guess I'm going to try and tread a little bit carefully here. But the thing about Vietnam is that we were very much routed into the Cold War. And this was the biggest conflict of that war for us. Like there's other markers for the Soviet Union as well, like Afghanistan, for example, before we went in back when the Soviet Union was still a thing. But We felt like the only way we could win over this section was like not even through diplomacy. It was through the military. And there was just no way we were going to win it because we didn't understand the culture of the people we were fighting. We didn't truly understand what the people wanted there. We put in the Democratic leader who did awful things and was not very Democratic, quite frankly. Like we were installing this awful regime. And so it's just like the American public, it was the first war where they started seeing people coming home in body bags on TV, you know? And so all of this is like swirling around and it's just like this giant mess. 
And it got to the point where I think 70% of the American public wanted out of that war and didn't think we would win the war. And yet they just kept fighting it. You know, like the president, we, it went through two presidents. It's like started with Johnson, a Democrat, went on with Nixon, a Republican. And like they were just refusing to leave for a long, long time. And so you were just watching more and more people die. There was a draft, which is always unpopular. You would be in high school and then you would personally know a big chunk of your class that went to Vietnam and a smaller chunk of that class that died in Vietnam, right? It was like all pervasive. And so this movie is just trying to like capture as many angles of that as possible, but do it in these really compact ways, like just doing it through a scene. And if you know, you know, but it is a homework movie, too, because you can look at this as just like a broad military movie. But they are talking about a lot of facets of the war. And you kind of have to know about the Vietnam to truly understand the movie if that makes sense and the people that completely lost their mind because i feel like that was definitely a big part of that war too is the cutting off of the ears and fucking being crazy and just you know like we were painting out the Viet Cong to be these absolute brutal people and then we're doing these brutal things too you know, like Kurtz is the example of that. Like Kurtz is the guy who's just like lost his mind and he's supposed to be the stand in for that general that was cutting off ears and wearing them as necklaces. Like that was a very specific general that was doing that. And that's what Colonel Kurtz is based off of uh, the way that they portray him in this. Didn't he, doesn't Ford say, uh, it's not based off of him. It's actually based off of this other guy. Yeah. He, ba it's an amalgamation of a couple of people, uh, is what it is. Yeah. All right, so they show up to the abandoned and core Empire Temple compound, teeming with uh, all of Kurtz's boys, corpses everywhere, severed heads. They're greeted by an American photojournalist who is praising Kurtz as a genius. Um, I mean, they literally pull up to this place, and it's just a temple, an old temple lost in the jungle where all these people are living, and uh, they're just killing each other brutally there's there's death everywhere right like there's just people who have been hung who have been like just displayed everywhere uh that are dead and then you get dennis hopper running up to the boat just talking about how colonel kurtz is like a warrior poet and all of this and like that guy is clearly just dropping acid and has lost his fucking mind and is doing this hero worship of kurtz by the way being media he probably shouldn't be in cambodia either i'm not sure he had permission to go into there but he's also just completely lost his mind so he's just going lockstep in with kurtz you know you're not supposed to be involved with the story when you're a journalist you're just supposed to be reporting the story and they show it in two instances where the media is participating instead of reporting dennis hopper's whole arc and then earlier you get a cameo with francis ford coppola where the soldiers are coming by and then he's like directing them how to come by which some people have taken like that's a meta moment because he's in the movie but it's like what it actually is is it's showing like that the media is trying to get the shots that they want and they want to report it a certain way. And so it's not really reporting the truth of it. It's just getting what they think will sell, right? Like what plays well on the news. They pull up. Willard is immediately taken. Lance just blends in. He literally just joins. I mean, he's definitely with them now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's absolutely lost his mind. Dennis Hopper is telling him like, man, you know, one day he's angry and hates you and pulls a knife on you and the next day he tells you did you know there are fucking da -da -da. he's just going off about how it's like you know he said warrior poet right sometimes he gets mad you know he takes things too far and we got a bunch of heads on the floor i don't know he's like literally justifying murder yeah he's <laughs> lost it just like everybody willard, else in this war he's yeah, lost they're it. all they're all fucking crazy willard gets imprisoned he meets kurtz they talk it's just so mind-bending watching marlon brando in the half light i don't know dude that that lighting and just the whole vibe of when you meet marlon brando in this movie for 10 minutes <laughs> uh it's breathtaking do you know why they light him that way though do you know why they actually light him because it's not an artistic choice this is the godfather thing right he was so heavy that like he was embarrassed to be on camera and so they lit him very darkly 
it, we'll get into that a little bit more later on. But yeah, it wasn't an artistic choice. It was just literally like they weren't going to get Brando to film unless they did that. He was a fucking pain in the ass and he was getting worse. Like we talked about what a pain in the ass he was and why he had to jump through the hoops in Godfather and then how he kind of left Francis Ford Coppola hanging in Godfather 2. Wait till you hear the shit he pulled with this movie, man. He is just a fucking world-class douchebag at times. Kurtz comes to visit him in his tiger cage. That's where he throws Chef's head into his lap. And then it's the first time you, other than when he's fighting himself in the mirror, that you see Willard just come on a hinge. This is too horrific. He can't handle it. And then he goes up to talk to Kurtz. And he's not sure what he's going to do when he comes up to talk to Kurtz, right? Because they let him out of the cage. And of course, Kurtz goes off on a bunch of T.S. Eliot, like reading poems and stuff. <sighs> and then I think Kurtz senses that he's going to kill him. And so he basically tells him his wife is like intercepting messages that he's sending to his son, trying to tell him the truth. So he's, he's saying like, tell my son everything that I did. And that's like really fucked up too, because he doesn't have remorse for anything that he's done. And he's propped himself up like a God in this little section of the country that he shouldn't be in. And this war that shouldn't be fought. Right. And he wants his son to like learn from his insanity. Like every part of it is just like nonsensical and crazy. Like he's just lost his mind. Martin Sheen comes up behind him and kills him. And then he has this moment where like everybody's watching and he realizes like, he could basically be the next god for him or he can walk away from it and he walks away from it and, and we get we kind of know that's going to happen before because he tells us in the beginning in the the voiceover that he got this mission he would never take another mission again after that right so you kind of know he's not going to do this check this the fuck out too they're fucking murdering a boar a real life boar in the background Wow, the Willard thing. They kill an oxen yeah, and that, they, that was real. They got away with it. They uh there's they were working with a real tribe. Yeah. And that was part of their one of their things that they did. So they just recorded it. It just happened while they were doing that and it just it fits in so well with Willard murdering Kurtz and then the boar or the ox getting yeah, Francis Ford Coppola's wife was filming stuff. I think it was just like promotional stuff for the movie. And then they had all this footage. So in 91, they turned it into a doc called Hearts of Darkness. And we're definitely going to be talking about that documentary a lot because a lot of stuff is known about that movie because of that documentary. You get to hear Francis Ford Coppola's inner thoughts as it's happening. He doesn't know he's being recorded and she's running a tape recorder for notes. And so you get all of these thoughts that he's having where he's upset with the script and all all kinds of things let's get into the themes i think the main theme of this is the hypocrisies of the war while u.s soldiers are being killed the top brass is concerned with killing one of their own clean kills an entire family because it's perceived as okay because he's following protocols when willard kills a severely injured woman to get back on the mission he's looked down on the french took vietnam and the family on the plantation bellows that it's their land as if the natives have no right to it and Willard sees Kurtz's point of view, but kills him anyway. Everything is just hypocrisies in this war, the way that they portray it in this movie, right? Like you build a bridge to cross over. That's just going to get blown up right after you build it. Like why, you know, why, why do you do that? Why do you waste the life to do that? So let's get into the movie behind the movie. So Orson Welles initially wanted to adapt Heart of Darkness for his first movie. That was what the book that this is based off of. Uh, the studio feared that it would go over budget, so he made a little film called Citizen Kane and said, you ever heard of it, Jeremiah? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the public had turned on the Vietnam War, and so Coppola was not able to make it when he first tried in 1970. He would have had George Lucas directing it. That is true. So if you didn't know it, that would have been his first movie. Imagine that. We're going to add a guy, Anakin Guyballer. And he's going to be, he's going to kill Colonel Kurtz. Apocalypse Now Redux, he would have been, well, I always wanted Dubex in the background of the scene, but uh, the technology wasn't up to snuff at the time. We added a Chinese alien named Watto. <laughs> he's going to be <laughs> no, 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 no. Watto's Jewish. <laughs> Watto's very clearly Jewish. He's got, he's got the uh, yamaka and everything, so... <laughs> 
Anyway, in 75, uh, Coppola launched his own independent studio and kicked it off with Apocalypse Now. He put his own money into it. He shot in the Philippines and was allowed to use the military's helicopters as long as they didn't need them to fight communists. And fight communists, the helicopters did. Right after filming the most expensive shot, they were in the middle of setting it up, and then the helicopters just disappeared. One of the many reasons why this movie was a disaster. Harvey Keitel was supposed to play the lead and was fired a week into filming. They had to pay him his whole salary, and then they replaced him with Martin Sheen. Lance Bottoms, who was on the movie, was smoking weed, doing speed, and dropping acid the whole time they were filming. A typhoon hit and destroyed some of their sets. Coppola tried to film during it, but they didn't keep any of the scenes because they didn't really work. Martin Sheen was drunk and punched the mirror, splitting open his thumb. He refused to have a doctor look at it because he was so tanked. So all that blood on the sheets, like all the blood all over him, that's real blood. Weeks later, he had a heart attack and refused to admit it. A priest performed his last rites. He looked so awful. Finally, they had to shoot around him while he was recovering in a hospital. Marlon Brando was heavy when hired and promised to get into shape. He was paid a million dollars, which was advanced by Coppola, and was supposed to film within a three-week window. He got heavier and refused to film in that later window and threatened to keep the million dollars on top of it. He was supposed to read Heart of Darkness, and he didn't even do that. Just the height of fucking douchebaggery with Marlon Brando here. Well, I was going to say, which sucks, because Colonel Kurtz is amazing in this. And just knowing that he's such a piece of shit makes me want to not like that character. But I love Colonel Kurtz. It wound up being 238 days of production time altogether, which is an insanely long movie. Like, typically, you're you're looking at, like, 30 to 50, somewhere around there. So this just went on and on and on. And since Coppola had put up his income as collateral in the movie, its initial box office did not earn enough to pay off debts incurred by the banks. Then his next film, One from the Heart, bombed, losing $25 million, which caused the studio to file Chapter 11. He'd spend the next decade working for studios that were now bought out by huge corporations. So he was starting this independent movie studio to make the exact movies he wanted to at a time when he had the most juice in Hollywood. And what wound up happening was he was basically the corporate heel after that, right? Like, that's one of the reasons he blames The Godfather 3, for example, being the way it is, is because every time he butted heads with the producers he had to bow down to him because like he had no right to it he owned no part of it he had to do the godfather 3 financially like he really didn't have a choice in the matter he totally fucked his career he had these like four amazing all-time movies in a row and then apocalypse now just kind of destroyed the rest of his movie making career uh so what are the rules jeremiah Charlie, don't serve. Uh, just fucking run if you see colored smoke, right? We talked yeah. about the oranges in the Godfather movies. In this movie, it's colored smoke. Whenever you see flares that aren't just regular flares that are like purple or red or whatever color, it means somebody's going to die or there's like the presence of death there, right? Like there are flares fucking hanging over everywhere when they come up to see Colonel Kurtz because there's dead bodies everywhere. The last one I have is don't hire Marlon Brando. <laughs> just don't. Don't do it. Uh, is the title of the movie set in the movie? No, but it's written, right? When they pull up to the temple, it's on one of the steps. I think it just says Apocalypse Now right here, or it's Apocalypse Now, something like that. Apocalypse Now is on the steps, so does it end at the right moment? Yeah, I don't even want to ha have that argument. It ends perfectly. Disagree, and Coppola would disagree with you as well. That's one of the things in Hearts of Darkness that you get is the entire time he's filming, he can't figure out the end to the movie because he doesn't like it as written, and he's really upset about it, and he's trying to figure it out, and he was never satisfied with it. But I just, I don't know. It's a weird ending because it goes into such like an ethereal thing where it's like he's choosing whether to be a god or whether to, you know, go back to mundane life, I guess. But that doesn't really feel thematically like it fits with everything else. Are you going to be broken or are you going to leave? But he's already broken. That dude was, that dude was already traumatized. Yeah, he's already and broken, so that's not really the choice. Like, the choice is, are you going to act like a god and, and continue this, I guess? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, like, that, and that would be him completely giving himself to that, you know what I mean? Never mind. <laughs> Does the story continue? Uh, no. 
Yeah, I don't think so. He says he never takes another mission. I think it's clearly Willard, over. Willard comes back, hangs out at a VFW, gets extremely drunk. His kids probably, probably put him in a home somewhere in Montana. This story becomes first just, blood is what happens. <laughs> that would be kind of hilarious. <laughs> Honestly, I have a feeling we have the same ACV MVP. Who's your MVP? My MVP is going to be the scene where they're interviewing Willard to see if he wants to go murder Kurds. And they're playing the little radio, like radio callbacks. Like, that's my favorite like thing ever. Okay. So I was incorrect. I, I'm going Robert Duvall, dude. Kilgore? That's oh, like an yeah. all-timer, man. Like, I despise the character, but holy fuck, that's a good portrayal on screen. Like, that is yeah. the best that I think Duvall will ever be. He has the lingo down. It sucks because it's like, you're right, Duvall and Godfather 1, 2, this movie, top notch, dude. Yeah. I wish I would have known him there than like what he did later on in life. Well, I mean, that's that's just careers. Like as you get older, it's harder to get juicier parts, you know? So the reception, it made $78 million off a $31.5 million budget, then another... 13 million off of re-releases. Roger Ebert said Apocalypse Now is the best Vietnam film, one of the greatest films because it pushes beyond the others into dark places of the soul. It's yeah. not about the war so much as about how war reveals truths we were never happy to discover. And then Dale Pollock of Variety says if Coppola isn't haunted by the specter of financial fiascos like Cleopatra, there's no assured future for Apocalypse. It's a complex, demanding, highly intelligent piece of work coming into a marketplace that does not always embrace those qualities that doesn't lessen its impact as film or art but it may give the next filmmaker who plans a 40 million war epic a few second thoughts and i can tell you 100 percent, maybe it didn't because <laughs> we got a few more of those so uh influences so of course it's from the novella heart of darkness it took place in 1899 so they just updated it to the vietnam war have you read the book? No, but I have an understanding of what the book's about. So what it influenced the dragon attacking and the spoils of war episodes of Game of Thrones was filmed with the villagers being <laughs> napalmed in mind. And then a million, I love the smell of blank in the morning jokes, right? Like I looked at a supercut and it had literally like 70 different comedy things where they're just like, I love the smell of commerce in the morning. Like that's small rats right there. I'm going to, I'm going to add something to this. That's very special to me. One of the first comics I've ever bought, ever bought for myself was an aliens comic. And in that comic, there's this crazy ass fucking dude that like murdered a bunch of xenomorphs. And then he throws a thing of napalm at something, and he's like, I love the smell of napalm. Smells like victory. And he quotes that whole ass thing, and that's like, oh, creme de la creme. Xenomorphs and Apocalypse Now references. Yes. <laughs> it's right up your alley, huh? Right up my alley. Legacy, it kicked off a slew of Vietnam movies. It also became the cautionary tale for funding your own movie, right? Like Passion Projects, you always bring up Apocalypse Now because that's like the worst case scenario of what can happen. With Hearts of Darkness, it kicked off a trend of profitable documentaries about Hollywood. So like the movie that they made about this movie definitely started a ton of movies that you can watch now. And it was preserved in the National Film Registry in 2000. So other source materials, we got the theatrical cut, we got Redux. And then if you look online, you can find the assembly cut, but I wouldn't recommend it. It's like seven hours long or something. Do you know what an assembly cut is? It's basically you take the best shots of each scene and then you lay them all out. Okay. So it's just like all everything you have is like laid out and then they take the assembly cut and they start like chopping it to make it into like, do we need this scene? Do we cut off this part? Like how much of this part do we keep? Right. So like if it's seven hours long, he reduces this to 90 minutes when it comes out because you're not going to keep everything. And some scenes are going to be way too long. Some scenes are going to be literally three seconds long, but you have, you know, cause you'll see a boat just establish the boat yeah. as it's going by. But then they'll show the, the boat floating down the river the entire time. And you want all of those choices because you're deciding to pace when you edit. Like, how fast are we going to go with all of these editing? And especially back in the 70s, the way you paced, you set the entire movie at the same pace. You know, you brought up this whole thing about the movie feeling ethereal. And I do feel like they shot a lot of things to be that way. Just the way the light reflects off the water when they're driving upstream and just when Willard's just going off on one of his monologues about 
Kurtz. It's all so surreal. It's a vibe, dude. And then, of course, we got the final cut, which is what we watched. That's the most recent version. Uh, would you buy this in 4K? I did buy this in 4K. That's what started this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the moment I bought it, I was like, listen, Biggs, I just bought Apocalypse Now in 4K. We have to do Apocalypse Now. <laughs> yeah, and you and, told me yeah, I had to watch Redux, too, and I was like, dude, I already know it. Like, <laughs> right. I don't need to well, watch I didn't that know. I didn't know how different it was going to be. Yeah. And I mean, I guess to, for final stuff to bring up, you know, the things that I liked about what they cut out is they cut out the gross scene where they meet up with the playgirls again. They're all like, they cut some of it. It's still there though. But yeah, they hack generously from that scene. There's a lot. There's there's 25 less minutes in this cut than there is in the redux. So it definitely flows better, but it still feels long to me. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> maybe i've just seen it yeah, too many times i feel it that's the it's how you're supposed to feel it's supposed to feel long you're going up wherever yeah it's not a fast thing well my first cut was a theatrical cut and they did that shit in 90 minutes <laughs> damn <laughs> <laughs> did i sell this blu-ray to settle medical debt i was listening to the doors drunk punching mirrors preparing for debt leon associates came to my room threw me in my shower and marched me down to the pawn shop how does this movie remind Jeremiah of Ghostbusters 2? Oh, man. <laughs> I have fucking no idea, bro. It's an older movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know. A Cosmic Void was created and hosted by Alex Small and Jeremiah Perez. The theme song was written and produced by Tom Smith. Follow Jeremiah Perez on Instagram at Vex Till Death. Leave us a voice message with an Anchor account or answer our poll questions at the site. Follow me, the show, and Redwood Sound Labs on Instagram at redwood underscore sound underscore labs or on Facebook at facebook.com slash redwoodsoundlabs. You can read short reviews of every movie I watched on Letterboxd under Alex Big Small. And join us next week when we talk about the Bong Joon-ho instant classic, Parasite. Also, shouts out Galen Howard. He was on fucking Star Wars. Oh, fuck shouts yeah. Shouts out that guy. Fuck yeah. Yeah, Galen Howard was on Star Wars, the, uh, the Boba Fett, uh, Book of Boba Fett. I saw him and I was like, oh, that's fucking nuts that that guy. Yeah, so we had him on the RoboCop episode, and then I was also able to get him on my other show, Not Safe for Network. I interviewed him about acting. He played a clerk, and he had a couple of funny lines, <laughs> and then he gets shoved out of the way by the mayor's assistant, and then he's just sort of sitting yeah, he, back No, there. he doesn't just say a few lines. He fucking trolls Boba Fett, bro. He says two and a <laughs> half lines. Like, he gets two full lines out, and he's halfway through the third one, and then he gets Dude, shoved. it's so it's, it's so great. fucking funny though because he's like mm, do you have an appointment <laughs> much love no <laughs> it's like damn dude that dude could just shoot you in the face like, i don't know it was a great scene uh galen howard <laughs> yeah on there we love you galen Podcast about the narrative and effective politics of war movies and their productions too. Charles Horgan and Aaron Donaldson bring you a brand new podcast, The Real War Project. Dip in and out of subjects with Lauren and Sarah's irreverent points of view with the hilarious podcast, Dippers. Catch up with the week's pop culture news as well as reviews of new movies and shows, not to mention the occasional interview with Carl, Brandon, and Biggs on Not Safe for Network. Wrestlers wrestle, but sometimes they make movies too. This podcast lets you know how they do. Listen to Eric and Connor in all three seasons of Movies with Wrestlers. One by one, Jeremiah and Biggs break down influential movies and some wretched ones too in the podcast you can't miss, A Cosmic Void.